0: I think anyone who reduces it in a sense to like, oh, I only want to be my best or I only want to be the best misses sort of what I would find, at least for myself, as the truth, which is I'm going to do everything I can to be my best and then see if that is the best or better than other people.
1: What's up, everyone? This is Skylar Butts. And today on the podcast, I'm joined by Jason Saltzman. Jason is a professional cyclist and he has really had to get creative while balancing his cycling career and his academic goals. As you'll find out, he is a testament to really giving 100% to what you are doing in the present moment. I had an awesome time talking to Jason and I hope you enjoy getting to know him. Hey Jason, how you doing man? Good, how about you? Doing well. From what I've gathered, you're in Austria, is that
0: right? Yep, still over in Austria, still hoping that Amid the crisis, you know, some sense of, you know, something from my season can be salvaged a little bit and, you know, even still, you know, it's a beautiful place in the world and I'm getting to explore a lot on, on the bike still. So glad to be here.
1: Yeah. You're basically on vacation, right? A little bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, my day-to-day life is really just the same as it would be, you know, in between races, right. You know, still training really hard and, you know, honestly, the vacation aspect, might be a little bit more true in the non pandemic times when, you know, stuff like cafes or, you know, I I could take the take the bus an hour and from where I am into Vienna and explore. Uh, but none of that's particularly happening. Right. I really, my day-to-day life is eat, sleep, train, you know, repeat. So,
1: yeah. So I have a little bit of a selfish reason for wanting to talk to you and I've been slowly plotting my triathlon career.
0: Ah, there you go. Like all good athletes, eventually, eventually, no matter where you start, you end up doing something endurance related. So
1: yeah. So this is this is phase one. Learn how to love cycling.
0: Right. What what I'll tell you is certainly once the bug bites, uh, the bug bites, and you know it's a pretty quick thing to learn to love.
1: Yeah. So that's a good segue. What what is it that you love about the pain and suffering of endurance
0: sports? To answer the question more broadly, of like what I love about riding and racing my bike is, you know, I think first and foremost, I love being out in nature and seeing all the cool places that the bikes, you know, has, has taken me. I've been lucky to race sort of all across the world, you know, obviously including Europe and various other places. But I think, you know, to get to the pain and, you know, what I enjoy about that is maybe it's not so much the pain itself, but it's what it offers me from a, you know, self-realization and self-exploration aspect, you know, it's, I, I think the, one of the opening lines in my college application essay was that I've learned more through riding my bike than I have from any textbook um, or any, in, you know, sitting in any lecture hall. And I think, you know, even after a few years down the line now, that still holds true, right? And I think I've learned more about myself, certainly, in I'd like to say about how the world works in a sense, through riding and racing, than you know I, I think I have anywhere else in my life. Maybe that's simply because I've spent so much time doing it. But when you push yourself to the, to the limits uh, with some frequency, you're, you know, you're going to learn just what those limits are, and you know sort of how you can then use experience and other things to sort of push those limits further and further.
1: And like you said, it's taken you all over the world, so experiencing different cultures.
0: Absolutely, right. You know, I've I've experienced places both in the U.S. and abroad. You know, there are places that later in life I would absolutely love to go back to and get to explore. You know, really more as a tourist. And there are certainly places that I've been that you couldn't pay me to go back. In a sense, you know, yeah, I have a love hate relationship with Arkansas, or you know, some of the places in rural Maryland that I've been lucky enough quote unquote to race my bike. So,
1: yeah. And I can imagine this time for you, like still training, but with no real goal on the horizon, that's been very different.
0: Yeah. It's, it's been very different in the sense that, you know, it's very hard to train super specifically.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I think unlike, you know, more skill-based sports at this point, a lot of endurance sports have, you know, very qualitative and quantitative metrics that you can use for training. You know, it's like, okay, you know, I can, if I can hold this power at this heart rate for this amount of time, that's better than it was a month ago. You know, there's all sorts of stuff layered in between that, that will help you improve a specific, you know, it's not just about riding your bike as much as possible, as hard as possible. It's about, you know, minimal effective dose of training, right? So that you're not sort of just banging your head against the wall, you know, gritting your teeth the whole time. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, using, using really effective workouts, you know, that are very specific. So, you know, highly specific sets of intervals with specific recovery windows and, you know, all sorts of things to really maximize the effect of any given workout. And it's hard to pick, you know, what you're going to work on right now, without knowing what sort of races you're training for, right? So right now, you know, for the past, I guess it's two and a half or three months at this point, you know, it's been this sort of funny limbo of, okay, you know, this is normally the time of year where you're, you're racing multiple times a week or, you know, every other week, or, you know, you're racing with enough frequency to know the racing itself is going to give me this big training boost because... You can't simulate racing and training very well Yeah, just because there are so many, right. You know, when you line up with 180 other people, right, you're not, you know, as much as I'd like to think I'm in charge of my own destiny. Right.
1: Yeah. It's, it's chaos.
0: The simple fact is that, right. If I can't follow the guy in front of me, I can't follow mm-hmm. the guy in front of me and all, or if I can barely follow the guy in front of me, I can't, I'm not dictating how fast or how hard I'm going. Right. He is. Yeah. So that in racing in and of itself is in some ways the best training. But if you know, you know, with historical data or even just your best guess, when you look at a, you know, normally races come with a published course profile and map and everything, you can sort of guess what the demands of any given race are and train for that in advance. Right now, it's sort of just, okay, you know, we're going to keep sort of all of the physiological systems firing at some level so that you know, they just don't, they don't go dormant, so to speak, but you, you know, you can't say, okay, you know, I'm aiming at a race that's going to really tax, you know, the VO2 max system, right? You know, your anaerobic ability to, you know, really produce short, repeated high, high power efforts, right? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's the race I'm going to do first and maybe not. And it's one of the things I focused on taking this time to focus on is really the sort of base foundation stuff you know the stuff that's harder or takes more time to build and it's honestly also slower to deplete once you build that base it's you know sort of there for much longer than your ability to do more sprint style efforts right which you know you can train you know you can train that up in three four five weeks but it also goes away in two three four weeks. So, you know, it, it's hopefully, you know, we'll have at least three or four weeks before the first race, if there is any racing coming later this year, to really, you know, prepare for, you know, the sharper, more intense efforts.
1: Yeah. That was something that struck me what you were just talking about, how everything is so scientific now. And it's not just yeah. going out there and riding for hours upon hours. No.
0: In fact, right, you know, one of the things I've taken over the last, Six to eight days. I've actually taken a lot of time to recover because what we can use, you know, basically, I'd spent so much time working on this base level of foundation and putting in, you know, massive amounts of miles and hours and whatever else that I'd really, you know, sort of drained myself fully. And we have right there's metrics for that, right? You know, mm-hmm. I can look in the, you know, I can get a graph on like, okay, every day I was draining the tank more and more and more. And eventually you hit a point where like, okay, when you stop being able to drain the tank more, you probably should back off before you completely empty the tank and, you know, sort of overtrain yourself. And so that when you look at the numbers and some of it, you know, still comes down to you know, the sens- sensations you feel on the bike, you know, during any given ride or effort. And, you know, you have to really be able to listen to your body. It's not like you can just use the numbers and the science blindly, but, you know, it is, it's something where... You know, I, every ride I can, I can come back, I can, you know, decide how I felt about the workout, but I can look and I, you know, there's all sorts of fancy software and training analytics th- where I, that I can use to say, okay, you know, the goal of the ride was to work on X through doing, you know, these specific intervals. A, did I do those intervals to the letter, right? As they were prescribed. hmm but, you know, maybe more importantly, did those intervals have the desired effect, right? You know, did they tax the right systems based on the power that I was doing, you know, the, re- the repeated power that I was doing and, you know, stuff like heart rate and perceived exertion and, you know, other metrics. So
1: there's so much to think about.
0: Right. And I admittedly, I'm a huge numbers and data nerd because, you know, one of my favorite quotes is sort of like, in God, we trust all others bring data. When you can measure it, it becomes improvable.
1: I feel like you have to be a, a big data nerd to be good at racing now. Is that true?
0: It's interesting, right? I look at it in sort of two ways. You either have to be, yeah, really big you know, numbers nerd and paying attention, you know, on your own, really delving into everything and you know, really a student of the sport, paying attention to everything. Or you have to really not care, but have someone who knows what they're talking about telling you what to do. Right, the dangerous place is in the middle, is where like you know you think you know what you should be doing, and you have someone that's sort of telling you what to do, and the two of those get confused. Mm-hmm. You end up with too many cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. You're doing half of the thing that this guy says and half of the thing that that guy says, but never you know really focusing and doing a hundred percent of either. And you know that I think the way you get around that is if you're really just the focus on doing and carrying out one full program whether that's because you've determined for yourself or right with your coach and for yourself right because you know the way you know i i work with a coach and you know have been lucky enough to work with some really good coaches including some of the people who have you know basically pioneered a lot of the science and training software i think the reason a lot of those relationships have worked really well is because both of us are huge nerves. We're using sort of self-experimentation and, you know, keeping really detailed and tracked notes. And it's a constant conversation between the two of us or, you know, the group of us. But I also think, you know, it's, you, you still see athletes who, who just sort of follow blindly whatever they're given. And that's, you know, I think also a viable way to do this, right? You know, mm-hmm. so long as there's, you know, there's someone at the helm and there's commitment to, a program or a process, then you're good.
1: Yeah, I agree. You can be a vessel and yeah. someone else can be the very the brain behind it. Exactly.
0: Otherwise every bike racer, runner, or triathlete would have, you know, some sort of PhD in sports science, right? And it's quite rare that you see I'll certainly say on the male side of endurance athletics, it's quite rare that you see athletes at the top level that have true academic experience beyond, you know, high schooler, right. It sounds weird to say a, like a remedial college level education, but you know, you, you don't get so much the PhD candidates racing bikes at the, you know, at the door de France.
1: Mm-hmm. So like you said, you love data and you're a student, student of the sport. Yeah. I'm so curious during races or just like riding in general, is your mind constantly
0: going or do you get into this kind of flow state? I think I'll go for two sides of the same coin on that one. The best races and the best rides are the rides where you get into the flow state and you know you're not thinking about it, right? Like you know, there's a, there's a saying in cycling where it's you know you can't you can't feel the pedals or you're dancing on the pedals, right? And mm-hmm. it doesn't it it doesn't matter how hard you're going. You always think, yeah, you know why not? You know I'll make it a gear harder and I'll just go a little bit faster. And you're performing at a level or in a way that you know you're above whatever effort you're doing and you're not having to pay attention to it those are the days i train for right that's the it's the best feeling in the world and when you're on one of those days you know you're not looking at the numbers on the screen and you're not thinking wow you know okay i just have to get through 10 more seconds at this power mm-hmm. on any other day in training certainly for anything that's you know i'll use perceived exertion just right on a scale of like one being the easiest you could possibly go and 10 being I'm only going to be able to do this for 10 more seconds and then I'm going to collapse and you know fall off the bike, which certainly has happened a few times at least. I'm sure. I'm sure. But anything more than a five or a six on the perceived exertion scale, you know, certainly at that point, I will start looking at the numbers, at least in training and, you know, really saying, okay, you know, like I'm focusing on holding this specific number, be it power or heart rate or whatever, for this specific amount of time because that's what I've been, you know, that's the workout I've been prescribed. And I don't want to go just to say that I want to go the right amount of hard, right? I don't want to go easier because that then you're not getting the desired effect, but I don't want to go harder necessarily because then you're, you know, if you have three intervals that are 20 minutes long, right? If you do the first one and all three of them are supposed to be, you know, somewhere around seven or seven and a half out of 10 on perceived exertion, right? And, the, you know, you can translate in that, that into a power number um, and say, okay, you know, so I'm going to hit 285 watts and I'm going to, you know, that's the average power I want to have for this 20 minutes, right? If you say that that should be a 7.5, right? Realistically, that's probably on the first one, it's going to feel more like six. And on the third one, it's going to feel more like eight. So if you were just going on perceived exertion, you'd go way harder on the first one than you were supposed to. Right, right. And you wouldn't be able to make it through the third one, maybe. Right. You have you certainly have days where you surprise yourself and right, the body's not as much of a machine as you'd want it to be. And then the flip side of all of this is that in racing, you know, I think I hinted at this earlier, it really doesn't matter for the most part, right? Rate racing is, you know, the first guy across the line wins. And generally, you know, you can't prescribe a certain number that is going to do that. You have to be cognizant of, you know, how, what, what's happening to you and what's happening around you being, you know, with that being, you know, what the rest of the is in front of you look like and what the riders around you are doing, right. If, you know, if there's someone that's going really fast, you sort of have to follow the guy going really fast, even if you don't, you know, a lot of the time, even if you don't think you can go that fast for the rest of the race, and sort of mm-hmm. just either hope that maybe you'll you'll surprise yourself and you can or that they also can't go that fast for that long and eventually they're going to back off and you know settle into a pace that you can also go there's so much going on yeah it it often gets joked or said that you know it's like a chess match at 30 miles an hour and you know I really yeah. do think for racing that you know that that's true you have to be thinking about not only what you're going to do right now but what you're going to do 20 minutes from now, or 30 minutes from now, or three hours from now, a lot of the time.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: I'm very curious because I can,
1: I can feel your, your passion for the, the sport. What were you attracted to when you first started
0: racing? So I think mean, it takes one step back, at least to start this for me. And I'll admit that my parents met racing.
1: Okay. It's a family thing.
0: Yeah. It, you know, it, it's in the blood, so to speak. Right. I was never, I was never forced to ride or to race or to do any of it, but it was always an option. And I think somewhat when, you know, when you're a kid and from the months from February to September, a lot of the weekend activities are jumping in the car with, to go watch your dad race on the Mm -hmm. weekend. It's almost inevitable that you're going to end up wanting to try it at least once. Yeah. Right. Maybe you hate it, but you know, it just so happens that, you know, as I said earlier, right, you know, when the bug bites, the bug bites. And, you know, it it was pretty clear that, you know, I was, you know, the things that were so cool to me about it, weren't just that, oh, look, dad's doing it. Or, you know, oh, yeah, I feel some family pressure to do it. It was like, okay, you know, I really enjoy the fact that I can be out in nature and explore, and the freedom that that brings, right. And I really enjoy really pushing myself and seeing what I'm capable of in a sense, it's this transitive property of, you know, okay, if I can really just push myself through this super hard workout, or, you know, push myself past what I thought my breaking point was on the bike, I can probably do some pretty cool stuff off the bike. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's really about finding the limit and sort of asking the question of, okay, how do I make that limit, you know, higher and higher through training? And then how do I sort of say, at the same time, I don't really care what that limit is. You know, I'm just going to, you know, grip it and rip it. Right.
1: Yeah. So I
0: I guess, and
1: I read your, your blog post and that's kind of a central theme is you're, you're chasing like your limits, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of a general athlete thing. Like that's why I still play tennis. Like I want to see how good I can get at it. And that's why I have this like kind of thing in the back of my head where I'm like, oh, maybe I should try triathlons because I hate all aspects of it.
0: Yeah. I, I want to pay the appropriate amount of respect to the amount of masochism that uh, <laughs> in, in right certainly endurance athletics takes. At some level, I really enjoy the pain, right? You know, I really mm-hmm. enjoy getting to the point when things hurt and saying, yeah, I don't really care. I'm just going to keep going, right? And, you know, I think through that, you know, you find the limits and you find, you know, all these other truths about, yourself or about other people or, you know, whatever. And you know, that's always been really attractive to me.
1: Yeah. And that's last year I said I would never run a marathon, but now that I've like, I've started to think about it more, I'm like, it's very enticing to get to that point where everything hurts and all you have is like your mental fortitude to, to keep pushing forward. Like it's been stuck in my mind and like, I get that a little bit through tennis, but not necessarily every match or practice. Yeah. Um, there's some matches where I'm out there for three and a half hours in the humidity, and I'm like, "What? What am I doing to myself?" But yeah. other times it's like an hour, and it's like, "Oh, it's it becomes more more about who's better rather than proving something to myself."
0: I think you know, at a, at a certain level, being sort of in awe of sports that I would call more skill based sports, where you know, there's like you know, there's a certain amount of right, like tennis or golf or basketball or baseball or you know, whatever sport you want to pick where, you know, the limiting factor is not necessarily like how much you can endure. It's sort of how much you can optimize any single movement or, you know, this one attempt at something, right. You know, so, you know, where you're going to put the ball to like either, you know, most disadvantage your opponent or most advantage yourself when the opponent, you know, returns it to you. There's not so much of that, you know, there's some of that in bike racing, or in marathon running, or whatever endurance sport you want to pick. But really, you know, at the end of the day, the amount of that is completely dwarfed by really just saying, like, okay, how much are you willing to hurt yourself to be faster than the guy next to you? And how much is he willing to hurt himself? And you know, that doesn't end at any point, right? You know, from when the gun goes off, until you cross the finish line, right? Like a lot of these races that I do are a hundred plus miles long and more often than not, the first 80 miles or 90 miles of that are pretty relaxed. And, you know, it really comes down to the last 10 miles just for easy math. But realistically, if someone wanted to, they could make the race absolutely miserable from mile zero and it could, they could make it into a six hour Slogfest where every you know everyone's miserable for six hours because you're on the limit the whole time. Yeah, right. It's not like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the ball to them and then I'm gonna have a second to you know reset myself. It's just okay. We're doing this. Let's see who can do it at the highest pace for the longest.
1: That's so interesting. I never thought about that. That you can set the pace as a group. It's it's groupthink.
0: It is at, at a certain level, right? And not to get too specific on the cycling like tactics of it there's a general script that a lot of races follow in which right say you have 20 teams and you know 150 guys in the race and you'll get five guys from the start from a few different teams that will go really hard from the start but then you'll have 145 guys that will sort of look at each other say yeah there's no way they can do that for that long. And then you ride at two miles an hour slower than they do for four hours. Mm -hmm. And in the last hour, you ride at five miles faster than they're riding. And then you catch them, right? I'm sure those numbers don't actually work. It's okay. As as I'm saying it now and trying to do the mental math, but- I'll forgive you. Yeah, well, right. I think the example holds of like, you get people who try all these different tactics and you, you sort of have to work your way around it and figure out how to race best for you or best for the goal of the team. And, you know, that's another weird thing in that it's a very individual sport that relies on, uh, right. You know, it's a sport that has individual glory that relies on teamwork to make that happen, but that's its own can of worms.
1: Yeah. We'll get to that. Cause I am actually very curious about yeah. how you slot into different teams, but um I guess now is a good point to kind of track your your junior career and from what I gathered you were a top national junior did you have your sights set on going pro from the the get go or did you know you wanted to go to college
0: I think the answer to that is yes to both cycling especially in the US is a very niche sport and mm-hmm. the number of Americans making a you know enough money to retire off of in cycling is effectively zero. So it was always this thing that I knew that, you know, even if I made it to, you know, the top level of the sport, you know, racing, the Tour de France, World Championships, right? All these, you know, the biggest races in the world, the odds that I was going to come out the other end, whatever it was, 10, you know, a 10-year professional career down the line with enough money to say, okay, you know, that was what I, that was my career. That was what I did with my life. Mm-hmm. It's not the NFL. It's not the MLB or the Premier League soccer stuff, right? You know, maybe you have ten guys in the world that are making enough money to like co- to comfortably retire off of in a way that you know they're never going to need need to work another day in their life from professional cycling. So it was always this thing where it was a very dual track thing, right? From high school going forward, right? It was always understood that I was going to do my best at school and, you know, do my best to further sort of the academic side of my life. And that wasn't necessarily going to come at the cost of pursuing my racing aspirations. Mm -hmm. So when you're in high school and, you know, when you're at the junior level, it worked pretty seamlessly. The majority of the races I was doing in high school as a junior, you know, save for a handful of really big races, you know, the biggest races throughout the year where it required a lot of travel across the country or whatever, were in California and more specifically, they were in Northern California, right? You know, it it was, and they were on the weekends. Okay. So it's not necessarily like a school sanctioned sport where in high, you know, in high school, your sports schedule is, you know, you play games on Tuesdays and, you know, you're, tied down to these practices that are built in around school time, right? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I, I still had to go to school and I still had to do everything at school, but from when I left school, right. School had no say in what I was doing, right. You know, I didn't have to report to team practice five days a week and follow that program. From the second I left campus, I was in charge of what I was doing with my time and the way to maximize, you know, yeah, I had to do whatever homework, but I never found that, you know, that much of a burden or a challenge, right? You know, it was just a, okay, you know, I have, the, I have this amount of daylight after school or this amount of daylight before school on some days, mm-hmm. right? You know, what can I do in that amount of time for training to be as fast as possible? And then on the weekends, right, you know, sat, Saturday and Sunday, and, you know, sometimes on Friday, Right. And I would have to work this around school a little bit, but school really had no impact on, you know, at least in high school on what was possible for racing. That's really fortunate. Yeah. It was really only when you got to the stuff like national championships, which generally happened during the summer, right? When there's no school anyways. And a few of the other sort of, I think what at the point were called national team selection races or you know, talent ID races or whatever that also generally happened either in the summer or, you know, they were smart enough to realize that most of these kids, most of us were going to school at this point and they happen around spring break or, you know, whatever, whatever other three-day weekends you get in the February, March, April, May timeline, right, if you're lucky enough. So at a certain level, you know, high, high school and racing worked very easily for me you know the the challenges actually came more you know i guess as i stepped up my racing to a more national and international level in college or you know in the in the past handful of years that things got more complicated with you know scheduling and traveling and all the rest
1: yeah and i can i can imagine like as you grow older you get stronger everyone is putting all their eggs in the cycling basket and you're kind of trying to balance the college life and the cycling life in the back of your mind, you're kind of thinking, well, I can't do everything in the day that I'm supposed to, to be competing with these, these guys. Is that true at all?
0: Yeah. So I guess to just give a breakdown of what that's looked like so far for me is right. I did my freshman year, both fall and spring semesters Mm -hmm. fall semester tends to be pretty easy, right? It maps pretty well onto what's sort of the true off season, right. At least from a racing perspective, right. There's obviously a lot of training um, and hard work that goes in, you know, from September to January uh, before, before any racing even starts for the next year. But, you know, effectively I wasn't, you know, I, I was never worried about the fall semester, right. Because it actually served at a certain level to, you know, Play this foil to racing for the other eight months or nine months of the year, and as sort of you know a way to de-stress and to you know feel like a normal human being a little bit, Mm -hmm. and get the balance that everyone you know seems to be striving for with their life um, as much as possible. Right, the hard part came freshman spring when I was trying to go to school like a normal student and race a full calendar, which became really hectic and you know i think i missed almost a cumulative month of classes oh wow my fresh my freshman spring between you know we had a 18 day long team camp you know and and that that took up in and of itself a lot of time uh away from school then you know you get to once you get into the racing right you know not every weekend, but I'd say every other weekend or every third weekend, you know, I would have to fly to Arkansas or New Mexico or, you know, whatever. A lot of these races weren't just on the weekends, right? You know, they were, the race starts Wednesday and ends Sunday. So, which means, you know, generally you try to get there on Monday or Tuesday, you know, have some time to adjust to whatever time zone, get the travel out of your system you know, this, that, and the other thing. So one race, you know, would take up effectively a week of time, you know, when you include travel to and from in the racing itself. And that wasn't so much of a problem for classes that weren't, uh, you know, heavily based on participation,
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know, stuff like, you know, any, any econ class, for example, right. But it was much more of a problem for, you know, something like my freshman writing seminar, where we, you know, the whole idea was that we were just going to sit around and talk about the books we read or the poems we read and you know the the professor became accommodating once i sort of explained to him that you know it was sort of this weird game of uh chicken in a sense it was like look i don't really care and he was like oh i mean like i want you to care so i'm gonna make it e- I'm, so, so, so in a sense i have to make it easier for you to do, do this and not penalize you for what you're doing outside of the classroom. But it became, you know, much harder for, you know, classes like that. And honestly, right. I think if it was just the classes and the racing, I would have had, you know, it would have been much better, right. I think where I got lost or, you know, where I found the most challenge was in trying to split time between, you know, sort of the fear of missing out. Right. Yeah. It's much, it's much easier to not feel like you're missing out when it's not an option, but when you're, you know, on a college campus and, you know, in dining halls and your friends are next door and whatever else, right. You know, all the things that, you know, it wasn't so hard to go out and do the training and it really, you know, at the end of the day, it wasn't so hard to go out or, you know, to figure out how to work classes and whatever around the racing and the travel and all that the things that got hard for me or that I found difficult were, you know, figuring out how to get myself, you know, not necessarily how to get myself to sleep on time, but, you know, to, con- you know, to consistently get good sleep and consistently, you know, not grab the extra cookie as you walk out of the dining hall or, you know, the, the little things that, you know, that make the training effective and, you know, really allow you to, you know, get the most out of yourself right cuz at the end of the day I'll certainly admit to the fact that you know while I have some genetic prowess or capability that's you know probably better than most people mm-hmm. right at the level that I was competing am competing I'm not special right and it, you know the thing that I think allows me to race my bike really well is when I you know use all of the science that we were talking about earlier and you know really optimize as much as possible right there's a cycling has this uh lovely phrase called marginal gains where you're picking off the percentage you know the singular percentage points of the things that are you know most people wouldn't think of um that eventually you know end up being what take you from 90% to 100% right not in one big swoop but in half percentage point or single percentage point increments mm-hmm. and I'm very lucky to you know be able to think think about those and try to get as many of those as I can but when you're on a college campus and you're under you know you have so much so many distractions and so many other things you could possibly be doing with your time than taking the time to stretch or foam roll or sleep or you sit down with a group of friends at a dining hall and all of a sudden when everyone else goes up to get the second plate of food right you also get the second plate of food, right. You know, you start losing out on all those percentage points that you either were getting before or were hoping to get now. And, you know, that's what became really difficult for me. And then of course, right. As you're trying to balance, or at least for me, as I was trying to balance everything together, you know, I felt like I was only, you know, having 75 or 80% of like the experience as a college student, Mm -hmm. right. You know, I wasn't getting to social, you know, on the days where I was being good, "Quote unquote," from an athlete standpoint, right? I was being, you know, I was ignoring all of the other things that make going to college such a, you know, the best time of our life, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I like to think that I worked really hard in college, like at, at my sport. Yeah. Granted, now that like I'm in the professional ranks, I realized I, like, I was working hard on the court, but there's so many other little factors, like you said, like, are you sleeping enough? Are you recovering enough? Are you eating right? which I was probably eating okay, but I definitely wasn't recovering. And I definitely like my sleep was kind of all over the place, depending on work. And if I had the willpower to go to bed, unless you're like so committed to your goal, it's hard to stick to your own path with, with all these other, with people kind of like you, yeah, like you say, you don't want to miss out.
0: Right. I I think in in a sense, moving on to the, like the next few years now going forward from freshman year, right? Like, I figured out that for me the best way to get around the problem of feeling like I was only competing at 80, an 80% level as an athlete and you know my grades or my academics were only happening at 80% and my social life was only happening happening at 70% was to sort of just get rid of two of the three things or you know one of you know in the fall I guess you know it's sort of more more balanced but in the, in the spring it was you know simply I figured out that, you know, luckily CMC has a pretty generous, uh, general leave of absence policy. And so I've been taking advantage of that, right? Like not putting myself in a situation or a scenario where there are the options to feel the FOMO or feel like I'm missing out or feeling, feel like, you know, I have to make a choice every day. You know, I have to make the choice Monday through Sunday to eat well at the dining hall and to get myself to sleep instead of staying up talking to friends until ridiculously late at night or early in the morning depending on how you look at it mm-hmm. and you know all the other things was just to make the make one bigger decision to say okay you know I'm in the spring I'm going all in on racing right you know I'm going to put myself in a situation where you know maybe I don't have a whole lot going on in my life other than riding and racing but that means I can really focus on that and give it a hundred percent. And I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to have the excuse of like, Oh yeah, you know, I could have been better, but I was at school and I was doing all these other things. And it was, you know, it was just hard to do the things that were going to make me good. It was like now, especially right now during quarantine and everything, right. I really have nothing else I'm doing during my day, right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, including sleeping, I can spend as part of what makes a good athlete Right. I can spend 24 hours a day just focusing on that. And right. Whatever that may look like from a training, recovering, sleeping, eating standpoint, there's nothing that's pulling me away from it and offering sort of that temptation or making me feel the FOMO of, oh man, like I could be doing this other thing. It's like, what I'm going to, you know, th- there's nothing else really to do.
1: Yeah. So i I fell into a little bit of a trap where like I came out of college and I was like, "I want to be an athlete, like I'm gonna do this hundred percent." And you use this term in one of your blog posts, like pro lazy. Yeah, I would love for you to s- describe what that means to you, but before we get to that, like I, I think it's cool that you have these essentially like two different lives where you get to be a student and you get to be all in on that. And then you also get to enjoy like being the pro athlete, which is a great lifestyle, but like, I found at a certain point, like it kind of numbs your brain a little bit, wouldn't you say?
0: Oh, without, without, without a doubt. Yeah. You know, cer- certainly for nine months out of the year, I'm effectively, all I do is ride my bike and think about riding my bike, right? You know, yeah, you have a few moments here and there, or, you know, maybe you have a few, ho- you know, a few hobbies or whatever, but generally those hobbies are very uh, minimalistic in the effort they require because you're putting so much effort into, you know, the, the other, the, the main objective that, you know, you, you really do spend, you know, I spend most of my time being lazy and that makes me, you know, that makes me a better athlete, but it makes me at a certain level, much less of a human being. Right. And so, you know, getting to fill that gap through, you know, academics and, you know, the academic and social outlets that college allows in the fall really does, you know, make me feel like more of a human on, on the whole, right? You know, certainly right now, having been away from school for what's probably almost six months now, if I look at, uh, you know, leaving after finals in live at the end of the fall semester, right? Yeah, right now, maybe I don't feel like much of a human, right? I really just feel like an athlete, but I'll always have the experiences that and the mental outlets that you know, thinking about things you know, related to my academic interests will bring. So, mm-hmm. do you find it
1: difficult to slot back into academic life after being out of it for nine months?
0: Yes, and it's not necessarily the ways of right, it's not necessarily like the thinking or the you know oh man, like now I have to read books and, you know, think about these academic problems that are higher level thinking and whatever else. It's more often than not with, you know, stuff that's more mechanical, right? So when you get to how do I draw this graph or, you know, how do I take the stuff I learned in this econ course last fall that I definitely don't remember now and apply and, you know, integrate it into the stuff I'm learning now, it becomes, you know, when you make much bigger gaps between any given course, I think it becomes much harder. So I find myself relearning most of the stuff, most falls that, you know, becomes applicable in any given course, which I think, you know, at a certain level, probably means at the end of the day, I'll have a better understanding um, rather than just, you know, going through it you know, in the normal progression, because if you have to reteach yourself something, you know, you you'll probably have a better understanding in the long run. Mm-hmm. But it certainly is not very fun, especially you know when everyone's enjoying the first few weeks of school and thinking, "Oh yeah, you know, the, we're just going over the stuff that I already know and building the foundation." It's like, "Oh, wow! I like I really don't remember this." You know, now I have to take the time and you know, otherwise I'm going to pay for it later. So. It's certainly a rude awakening every fall.
1: Oh, I I can imagine. Like even after su- this long summer, like if you get what three months, like just forget everything. Yeah. So I can't even imagine nine. So I I just got to thinking, like you're on a D three college campus for three months of the year. When you look at like what they're doing, like how how much more effort are you putting into your your sport on a daily basis than the average D three athlete?
0: So at some level. I'll let you answer, I'll let you, I'll give you some information. I'll let you answer the question is, is, is what I'll do. Right. And some of this will just simply be in like statistics of how much I train on any given week. If you take all of the time, right. Where I'm training, which I'll call, you know, any form of intentional movement, whether that's on the bike, in the gym, stretching, rolling and anything that's intentional movement, aimed at getting faster, fitter, stronger, or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, that's probably in the realm on easy weeks, that's 20 to 25 hours. And on, you know, the hardest weeks, that's north of 45, 50 hours. Okay. And, you know, that certainly, it comes in waves, right? You know, that's not, not every week is the low end and not every week is the high end, right? You know, and there's plenty of stuff in between. But I think, you know, especially in the towards the end of fall semester and, you know, in, in what would typically be like the winter break period, which we'll call preseason for spring sports, right? You know, I'm doing consistently 40 hour weeks worth of training, right? So, you know, it's, it's when you think of a nine to five job, five days a week, you know, you're really looking at the same amount of time spent. From the the true training perspective, right, and I I think the other thing that I'll say on this is that on a D three campus, you have right. I tend to find that the general level of commitment it varies is often a little bit lower. Yeah, right. Certainly, that's not to say that everyone's just saying, "Ah, yeah, I'm playing sports, I'm having a good time, I'm drinking beers." But it's it's more often that you know I. I see certain outliers in any, you know, on any given team or in any given sport that I resonate with way more than the general population of student athletes, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's the handful of people on the, you know, and the handful of swimmers or the handful of people on the cross country team that are really, you know, living the lifestyle in a, in the same way that I find myself living. Right. You know, I think, you know, th- th- I certainly think this may be different if I was, you know, if I was at a D1 school where there's more, right, there's simply more pressure and more, you know, prestige or whatever that comes yeah. with being a student athlete. But on, yeah, certainly on a D3 campus, right, I don't know the actual training loads that most of the sports are doing, but I certainly feel like there's a lot, right, I, I, I put in more time if nothing else in training than a lot of the sports do?
1: Well, like, like I said a little bit earlier when I was training, like I, we'd have like two hours of practice, five, five days a week and then matches on weekends matches take forever. Yeah. But then like on top of that, there's like an hour of fitness, maybe like every other day or whatever. But I, I mean, I was doing extra, but I think where I fell behind, like in the, like compared to you, like as a professional, you know what you're doing. Like I just, I didn't do any of the, like the the proper recovery stuff, and I was lucky that my body yeah. handled it for four years. And I've, <laughs> and I don't really know how. I was enc- incredibly stiff; I couldn't touch my toes. But yeah, I, it, you're right. It's it, it is a lifestyle, and like I've talked to a lot of D three athletes, and one of the ones I just talked to was a guy I played uh, tennis player Ben Rosen, and he. When he came out of college and he tackled like the pro level, he he had to learn so much. It was just eye opening for him because it's not it's not just doing your sport; it's it's taking care of the sleep, the eating, all that stuff that just kind of gets overlooked. And I can imagine for you as a professional cyclist without a team in the fall that it yeah it's a lot for you to think about.
0: Yeah, it's right. Certainly, you know, I'm I'm definitely a creature of habit. Mm-hmm. which makes things easier in a sense right you know i pretty much every day follow a similar routine even regardless you know at least from off the bike my routine day to day is basically the same right whatever whatever i do on the bike will vary and you know simple things like the simple like caloric intake changes depending on how long i ride my bike yeah but the the stuff like stretching and rolling you know i'll do the same stuff on recovery days that i'll do on the hardest days right you know so the pre the pre-ride you know activation warm-up stretching mobility work is the same the the post-ride stuff is the same the pre-bed stuff is the same right you know and i find that that may that again just makes it easier to do right if you're not just having to think about yeah, I'm going to do this on the hard days and I'm going to do this on the easy days. And well, is today a hard day or an easy day or is it somewhere in between, right? You know, if you just do the same thing every day from a, you know, the stuff that's going to optimize whatever you do on the bike that day, then, you know, it becomes much easier to sort of just do it than to sit around and think about it, right? And, you know, once it becomes part of the routine, you know, it becomes much simpler. Mm-hmm. So when you do go and like
1: you go, you find your team. You're hustling to find a team, yeah. And you you slot in like you don't know these guys. Is it is it easy to take your individual goals and kind of assimilate into the team lifestyle?
0: It depends on the team. You know, certainly there have been teams where it's been easier versus not, right? You know, I think one of the things at this level, at the level that I race at, is there aren't necessarily as strict of roles, um, as you would get in, you know, the highest level teams, right? You know, so the, the, the teams that are racing the Tour de France, everybody on that team knows what their job is. Mm -hmm. Right. And they know what their job is every day of the 21 day of a, you know, a 21 day race, like the Tour de France, but on the teams at the level I race at, right. You know, there is a little bit more freedom of like, you know, okay, yeah, we're going to go into the, any given race, understanding you know what the parkour look like or the course looks like for the race and who's most likely best suited to that and you know we're probably going to work for them right you know if it's a race that's probably going to end in a fields in a sprint obviously we're going to do everything we can to protect the guy on the team with the best sprint all day and set him up the best for the win you know if it's a day that finishes up a 30 minute long climb up a mountain right we're going to protect the guy who goes uphill best but there is you know the racing is generally less controlled at the level that I race at which leads to you know sort of more freedom for anyone to find their way to win right or their way to do their own best result right and you know a lot of the time that isn't true right that's not true every day but it's true you know on days where it's not clear like, you you know you're not gonna sit around and make all day on a day that finishes up a 20 or 30 minute climb and say that the guy who is the heaviest guy on the team is the guy who's the protected rider, right? Just like, you're not, you know, no, one's going to look at me on a day that has no elevation gain, right? And maybe it doesn't come through in the video and certainly not for people who are just listening, I'm a very small person and right. generally my strengths involve going uphill quickly sometimes. And you know, no one's no one's going to look at me on the day that has no elevation gain for the whole race and say, yeah, you know, he's probably the guy who's going to win. We should ride for him, right? So mm-hmm. it's, you know, on those days, it's my job to help the guys. You know, it's 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 sort of a, a very give and take symbiotic relationship at this level, where you know, yeah, everybody should generally have their day to shine, and the you know, on a good on teams that are run well. You know, everybody is given that freedom to find the best day for them.
1: That's really interesting. I I like that a lot. I think that's how it should be. But but you said the tour, like the big the big dogs. There,
0: it's not like that, right? That's what I heard. No, I think you know most most team. Right, you know, we we'll, we we'll use the Tour de France for the example because generally that's the only bike race that most people know. It's the only one I know. The yeah, I mean, right? It, it, some of that is just a you know how, how niche of a sport it is in the U S but you know, every team that almost every team that goes to the Tour de France will have one objective and one, right. One, maybe two riders that, you know, that's, you know, those are the riders that they're looking at over the course of the the whole race to bring the results and everybody else on the team is there to facilitate that rider or those two riders winning the race.
1: Mm-hmm. So I want to transition here to something I read in your blog post about yep. this being a make or break year for you. Is that still true?
0: I mean, I think like a lot of people uh, over the last few months, I've been asking myself a lot of questions, having whatever existential crises come along with this. It is certainly true in a sense, right? I think, you know, I came over here with the idea that, you know, this was going to be the year that I answered the question of Was I good enough to make it to the next level, which is, you know, the, the highest level that races, you know, the biggest races at, you know, like the tour and all the other races that come around that. And this certainly confuses that. And I'm not sure right now that I actually have a good answer uh, to that question, right? You know, I think part of the reason I've stayed is because I want to be able to answer that question this year. And the longer that I stay here and the longer we don't race, uh, and the less likely it looks that we will race at all. I certainly am skewing more towards, you know, okay, I'm going to try to figure out how to come back next year and make next year, you know, sort of just make next year this year in a sense. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that requires again, you know, taking the time off of school and, you know, figuring out, right. How to hustle my, maybe how to hustle my way onto a team, right. Mate, you know, it's not a given that I have a, you know, at, At least right now, the team I'm on hasn't guaranteed any slots for next year. You know, it's not even guaranteed for right now cycling. I think like a lot of sports and maybe more so than most sports is having a big issue with figuring out how to keep teams alive, you know, from a sponsorship standpoint and without any races, right. You know, all of these companies that have dumped, you know, some of their marketing budget into sponsoring a team that are getting zero return on investment right now, because there's no racing Mm -hmm. are certainly going to have a hard time justifying sponsoring teams next year. Yeah. You know, especially after losing money this year on it. So, you know, a lot of teams are just uncertain whether or not they'll exist next year. Right. I think, you know, one of the things that's going to be a determining factor in all of this is, you know, not necessarily, you know, I think it comes in two ways, right? Like I have to figure out what I want to do. And then I have to get to a point where what I want to do and we'll assume for now that, that, you know, what I want to do is keep racing and keep trying to answer that question and, you know, keep fighting in a sense matches with whatever teams and races still exist when we get to next year. And, you know, someone wants to give me the opportunity to, you know, perform and see where that lands.
1: Yeah. The reason I ask is I'm, I'm in a similar boat, like in my head, like I felt like I started to put things together and I was like, okay, this is, this is my, this is my opportunity to see like what I can do. And I'm mentally capable. I'm physically feel capable this year. Like, let's just see what happens. And then I will make a decision at the end of the year, whether or not I feel like good about what I've done. And then that's taken away from you. Exactly. Then
0: it becomes a commitment thing. Yeah. Right. I think. One of the things I found out, you know, again, in the like self-exploration through all of this is I'm stubborn. Like I'm really stubborn, right? I, right. I don't want to give up on this, right? I don't want to leave the question unanswered, right? I'm actually perfectly happy to get to a point where I feel like I've gotten everything, you know, that I've done everything I can do in the sport, Mm -hmm. right? I recognize that, you know, you know, at some point there's going to be a, whether that's this year, next year, or 10 years down the line that there's some point where like I'm just not good enough anymore or I'm not progressing enough to make it worthwhile for you know someone to say hey we want to we want to give you a spot on our team right we want to like you deserve to be here but right now that's the bigger question than for me than whether or not you know I want to be there yeah you know I think you know the hardest part in all of this is feeling like you know this year going away right and for for right now we'll just assume that no racing will happen this year my next year was reliant on this year being really good and without that there's no guarantee of next year being a thing so that's been the hardest thing to sort of deal with or reconcile in all of this is that like okay what do i do if i feel like you know i still have more to give but there's not really the platform there to do it. Mm. And so that's sort of been the hardest thing to deal with for me.
1: Like for me, I feel like I'll know when, when I've gotten everything out of my abilities and I feel like you feel the same way. Exactly. And that is more important to me than, than anything else. And if I quit before then, then I, I just, I won't be happy.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I, it's a, it's a fulfillment thing, right? You know, I, You know, everyone has the cliche of like, you know, I don't want to be 45 sitting on the couch, drinking a beer and thinking, oh man, what could have been? Yeah. Right. You know, I want to answer that question now so that when I get to that point, you know, however many years down the road, when I'm looking back on whatever I did racing my bike, it was like, wow, that was really cool. And, you know, I got what I wanted out of it, right. Or I got what I could out of it in a sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, you know, and Like, like you just said earlier, right. You know, this, you know, coming off the back of last year, right. With a full, you know, combining, right. Because cycling's right. Being an endurance sport, right. You build the fitness I have today is an accumulation of the fitness I've been working on for the past 10 years. Right. Right. And, you know, I finally felt like I figured out the best ways to train and recover and, you know, do all of those things. And I finally figured out after last season racing in you know spending the whole year racing in europe how to tactically and you know like the skill part of it stepped up a whole nother level and right you know i was finally putting together all these pieces and you know this was the year that i was going to be like hey look right you know here's this body of work this puzzle that i've built and this is what i can do with it and now it's sort of like Okay, well, you know, I'm sitting here knowing that I want to want to go out and show this off and you know, do the best I can with it and maybe may, maybe it's good enough to get results this year and to get a contract for next year or maybe it's not. But I felt like I was finally at a point where it was like, okay, I'm going to have an answer to this question. Yeah. And now sitting here with all this to show and nowhere to show it.
1: Yeah. And it's it's a question you've had your whole life, right? Pretty much.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, from, from when I started taking racing seriously when I was 13 or 14, right. It was, that was maybe the, you know, the driving question in all of this was like the question of limits, right. You know, how, how far can I push myself? And then, you know, because humans are competitive and we're all competitive in a sense, right. And especially athletes, right. It was like, how far can I push myself? How good can I get? And then, okay, where does that stack up? right you know is is it good enough compared to everyone else right yeah i'm going to focus on being my own best but i sort of want to know whether that's better than someone else but you focus on yourself first right oh absolutely i think anyone who reduces it in a sense to like oh i only want to be my best or i only want to be the best misses sort of what i would find at least for myself as the truth which is i'm going to do everything i can to be my best and then see if that is the best or better than other people. Right. Right, good good enough to be competitive, right? Because at the end of the day, right, you know, s- what sports are? Sports are co- you know, regardless of whatever sport you play, right? It's a competition, right? You know, there's a winner and a loser. Some people I know train because they hate losing, some people I know train because they hate they love winning, and some people I know train because they want to figure out how good they can be. Mm-hmm. For me the intersection probably of all three of those is really, you know, what's driven, you know, most of my racing. And certainly the question of, right. That sort of make or break, you know, the thing you were getting at with the make or break year, or I guess that I wrote, um, and then you asked about, about the make or break year and then, you know, when I will feel like I've sort of fulfilled whatever I have to do in the sport.
1: I love that. Cause for me, I feel like it's, it's become more of a question, like, as I've been going through my professional journey, granted you were professional when you were your senior year of high school. So I guess like our age where we actually like turned professional was very different. But I think back to when I started playing tennis and like taking it seriously. And I just, I don't even remember like setting any sort of goals about seeing how far I can go. Like all I wanted to do was just go day to day and, and practice and get better. And over time it, it, it has transformed into this idea of, like, well, how, how far can I take this sport that I, I know I wasn't very naturally talented at, <laughs> but I'm going to do it. anyway.
0: <laughs> oh, man. yeah, yeah You know, I, I, when I, when I was thir- 12 or 13 and racing bikes, I was, you know, I'd get lapped. I certainly wasn't some wonder kid that like just hopped on a bike and started pedaling away and winning races. Right. Like I would at the very start and i think you know through all of this right like i've always just been a kid riding bikes right and you know that's you know finding that in whatever you know i think honestly whatever you do right is you know the most important is like what makes you feel happy about what you're doing and you know why and how and how can you get the most out of that and you know how that's evolved has been from a yeah when i was starting yeah i was just happy to ride my bike and I enjoyed being out and rolling around and as you know I became more and more serious I think that's evolved some to be okay you know now how good can I be how far can I push myself but I think you know it's still the same question of like what is going to get the most out of riding bikes for me or racing bikes and you know I think that is sort of the essence of the you know this whole career process, whatever that I've journey that I've been on.
1: Yeah. And I think what you said about like the essence of the sport, like getting back to why you started like yesterday, I, I was hitting tennis balls and I was like, for the first time in forever, I was like, wow, I'm just out here to hit tennis balls and it's fun. Like I'm not trained yeah. for anything. And so that was, that was a super cool moment for me. Cause it like for a long time, like I was like, do I really enjoy this? And I mean, the answer is yes, for whatever reason that joy fluctuates and turns into like these audacious goals where we expect so much of ourselves every day versus just focusing on just enjoying it. And I'm sure right now you've been finding the same, just riding your bike with no, no clear purpose other than building your, your fitness and exploring Europe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think for, for all that, you know, this pandemic's taken away, right. I think what it's really, you know, given, given me in a sense is, you know, the ability and the freedom to sort of return to, you know, why I really love riding my bike, right? You know, because if I didn't really love riding my bike, when racing went away, I would have stopped riding my bike, right? Yeah. But I think every day through this pandemic, and, you know, probably every day for the past handful of, you know, whatever it is now, 10 years, I wake up and I want to ride my bike. Some days, some days, that's hard. Some day, And some days, that's just rolling around and looking at the trees and the flowers and the mountains. And you know, I think, you know, the freedom that of not having the goal and not being so laser focused on, okay, you know, I'm going out, I'm nailing this workout as it's prescribed to the letter. And then I'm going home and I'm doing everything, you know, the freedom now of like, yeah, you know, I'm going to take some days and I'm just going to ride my bike for fun Mm -hmm. and I'm going to explore and it's going to be what it's going to be. And it's been great. Some of my favorite rides here have been the rides that I've done with no plan at all. Right. It's like, all right, I'm, you know, I'm going to throw some food in my pockets. I'm going to, and I'm going to go ride my bike for four or five hours and just enjoy it. Yeah, Right. More, more than going out and saying, okay, I have to do this power or this heart rate for this long. And then this power, or this heart rate for this long. And, you know, eventually you start just, you know, as you, I think one of the questions you asked at the beginning of this was like, how much do you look at the screen, right? Like. I've had days where I haven't looked at the the screen on the computer at all. Right? you know, it's just been riding riding a bike for riding a bike's sake. That's been great. I know. Right. It's like hitting the balls it's hitting the balls against the wall for the fun of hitting the balls against the wall, right?
1: I know. It's it, it just gets lost sometimes and it's been nice to rediscover that. And absolutely. I hope to hold on to it. Anyway, Jason, I usually end with a few questions. All right? Well, the first one is And I'm going to, I'm going to adjust them a little bit. The first one's going to be, if you could turn any unhealthy food into a superfood, what would it be?
0: I'd probably have to say ice cream, right? Because any, anything else, right? You know, I think much more in like the quality of food, right? I can get a good pizza and not really consider that an unhealthy food or a junk food, but I I can't really, I don't think I can ever justify ice cream as a healthy food. Yeah, no, I, I think I would certainly have to say ice cream.
1: I actually had a swimmer who said that uh, chocolate ice cream is basically chocolate milk, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Right. And I I think, you know, not to go down the rabbit hole of nutrition and everything, but, you know, I think if you, you know, if you're eating high quality versions of stuff, Mm -hmm. so long as you fit, you know, you fit it in well into your, you know, whatever you're doing for training and you make sure you're, you know, it's going to be used by the body, you can get away with it just fine right. And it's not just getting away with it, right. You can enjoy it and, you know, just fit it into a good diet.
1: Yeah. Everything in moderation. Exactly. I I'm adding this one for you. This is, uh, what is your favorite recovery tool?
0: I'd say the, I think what I'm using the most right now is just a normal, like black foam roller. Okay. The like trick fancy thing that I'm using the most right now is I have, uh, it's it's called a, it's my backmate but it, effectively it's a percussive massager um like a Theragun or something else it's just different different company gotcha um and you know that's that's certainly a lovely time and works wonders on sore muscles tight muscles everything
1: i have a vibrating foam roller that if my house was burning down that would be the one thing
0: i took that'd be the first thing you grab first thing i grab yeah i think really like any anything that i can use to get into knots and, you know, try to loosen them up, sort of anything that falls into that category right now, yeah. um, is certainly what I would get at. So, yeah, right. And that, that could even be as simple as a tennis ball.
1: Oh man, T- Tennis balls are useful. Yeah. They've gotten me out of, uh, some dangerous knots. Yeah. Anyway, any advice for D three athletes that are looking to turn pro at their respective sport?
0: Right. I think in general, it's just the, you know, like focusing on, you know, finding your own path through the whole process, right? Because mm-hmm. clearly, you know, D, you know, D3 to pro is not a particularly common way to get to pro. Yeah. It's really like figuring out what you need to do and sort of just being relentless in pursuit of that, you know, trying to figure out what it takes and then executing on that is really the crux of what I would get at. Yeah. Okay, so my
1: last question is: How do you define success?
0: I think right. I think we've talked about it without yeah. labeling it as such a lot in through this podcast, right? It's, you know, so it's, it's it's being able to answer the question of you know, did I get the most out of you know the time I spent doing this thing, right? And you know, that could be in the sense of race results, or but it could you know, I think more so, it'll really just be in the sense of like, do I feel that fulfillment that like I Got what I could and did what I could to make the most of it awesome man
1: but yeah jason i hope you i hope you continue riding i'd I'd love to yeah. to follow
0: along in a sense right the continue riding is never going to be the question. it's the racing part of it yeah. uh that's you know more more up in the air and you know maybe we'll see right certainly I would love to race, and certainly this has made it this whole uh pandemic has made it a whole lot harder in a sense so yeah shakes things up a bit. Yeah, exactly. Keeps you on
1: your toes. Yeah. All right, man. Well, Jason, it's been fun talking to you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for taking the time and reaching out.
1: That's all we have from Jason this time around, but I hope you enjoyed hearing from him. I actually had a ton more questions for him, but we had to save something for next time. If you liked what Jason had to say, you can follow him on Instagram, where he'll, I'm sure, keep you up to date on all the beautiful scenery around Europe. You can find him at j.salt. And be sure to check out his blog posts by following the link in the episode notes. You can find us on social media as well at D3 to Pro on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. And I'll see you next week on D3 to Pro.